the common understanding is we need to succeed in this research, no matter how little budget uh, investors are willing to, to spend on this, because it's important for humanity. And exactly that was my motivation to, to dig deeper into it. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I'm continuing my investigation into cold fusion, looking into potential scientific explanations of the excess heat and fusion products hinted at by Dr. Edmund Storms in my last podcast. There seems to be a dedicated research group that is working on these theories, and I'm eager to find out whether or not their hypothesis, called condensed plasmoids, can stand up to skepticism. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app, share it with your friends, join our discussion group uh, on Facebook, The Rational View. Lutz Jaitner from Hamburg, Germany, is the father of three adult daughters. He holds a Master of Science degree in physics from the University of Hamburg. Lutz started his career as a designer and developer of multiprocessor hardware, after which he worked as a consulting engineer. Lutz is the programmer and operator of a public cloud service for neighborly help groups, Obelio Elets Service. Around 2006, Lutz started to evaluate the available literature about low-energy nuclear reactions research. By 2015, he found an explanation how the reaction might be facilitated by an ultra-dense plasmoid state of matter. It took him until 2019 to work out a quantum mechanical model of this state, to program a simulation tool for it, perform the simulation runs, and document this theory on his website. Lutz, welcome to The Rational View. Hi, Al. Thanks for uh, reaching out to me. So why did you get involved in uh, low-energy nuclear reactions research back in 2006? What prompted you to, to enter this field? Actually, I was doing some political research and found out that there is a source of energy which is kind of suppressed by um, established forces in the energy market and, and beyond. And once I understood that this... Um, initial finding of Fleischmann and Pons back in 1998 was not a fraud, but in, in reality was an opportunity for humanity. I got very interested and I tried to research the primary literature that exists after um, so many years of research. There were thousands of, of um, scientific papers on the subject. And the first thing that I did was um, finding out, is that real? Is it something that I can believe with my physical understanding? And after some weeks, it turned out to be very real. There was not, not, the single, not a single indication of fraud. However, I noticed that the people working in this field had no funding, so they were private people or pensioned um, professors or with the exception of the military, interestingly. So the, um, the Navy in the U.S. was researching that and um, a group at Stanford University is, is also engaged in it. And um, that indicated to me that this is a political topic. It's not only about research, it's also about... Um, a political battle in the energy market not to um, promote this new field too early before certain sources know how to monopolize it. This is my taking on it. This is not something that is said publicly, but the impression um, I got from, from uh, looking through the, the uh, literature. So what, what particular research convinced you that this was not... Um pseudoscience, this was actual, real results. What, what, what convinced you? 
Let's compare that with magnet motors, with, which is uh, certainly pseudoscience, right? There is a free energy movement around in the world and people are building magnet ma motors and showing videos how they um, produce energy out of nothing. And if you compare that to cold, cold fusion or LNER, you notice that in the magnet motor field, there is almost no um, scientific reasoning where the energy comes from. There is no good documentation in, in, in form of scientific papers, what they have done, under which con conditions they saw the effect, how large it was, and so on and so on. There is a complete lack of data and an overabundance of claims. And if you compare that with the cold fusion research, you see the ex exact opposite. You see um, experienced scientists doing very, very careful measurements in calorimetry, which takes months, if not years, to perform. And then there is a lively debate whether they did everything right and the measurement is really precise enough to make the claims that that the, the papers do. And there is a um, yearly conference called uh, ICCF, which um, is a meeting, let's say, of worldwide uh, activists in this field. And I uh, participated in these meetings. And it is so obvious when you talk to these people that they are serious. They, they, they are not looking after investors of defrauding somebody. They, they do it for humanity, basically. This is the, the common understanding is we need to succeed in this research. No matter how little budget uh, investors are willing to, to spend on this, because it's important for humanity. And exactly that was my motivation to, to dig deeper into it. And of course, it was not clear what exactly is the source of the energy. The finding was clear. There is heat coming out under certain conditions, and um, these conditions are weird. Very, very, very different experiments were taken, and the same effect was, was uh, seen. So... That made me, from a scientific standpoint, very curious. I wanted to understand how does it work. Right. You came up with a, a hypothesis called condensed plasmoids as a potential scientific explanation of what's happening in low-energy nuclear reactions. Could you provide us with how you came to that conclusion and, and give us a brief overview of what it means? Yes, sure. So... When I, uh, when I studied the literature of cold fusion research for several years, I came up with certain con convictions. I was convinced that hydrogen is not fusing with hydrogen in any of the experiments. This was um, an opposite to most researchers' opinion. So I disagreed with the basic assumption that deuterium is, deuter is fusing with deuterium in, um, in the lattice of palladium. I thought this is outright wrong, and the indication for, for that is if you look at the ash that comes out of an experiment, you are not only seeing helium, which was measured a number of times, but you see a zoo of almost all elements in the per periodic table. Now, this finding of um, so many different isotopes coming out of the reaction is completely at odds with the assumption that deuterium is fusing with deuterium. So I was sure about that one. The next thing was... Um, I need enough energy to produce heavy elements or certain outcomes of the reaction. So the fusion energy of 
just a single atom of hydrogen with any other sort of atom is not large enough to explain that, for example, nickel and light hydrogen produces silicon or calcium or magnesium or aluminium. This, uh, from an energetic standpoint, that is not enough to, to do. So something else needs to go on than a simple fusion between one hydrogen and, and one other element. So I tried to figure out from a quantum mechanical standpoint what, what can provide a multi-fusion or in any other mechanism that gives enough energy to do fusion and fission and produce all the many uh, elements. So that was, that was the initial reason why I was using quantum mechanics. I thought that in a direct way, nobody is able to understand why fusion happens at all. The Coulomb barrier is too large to allow fusion and normal matter doesn't fuse. Why does it fuse in these uh, experimental setups? That was completely unclear. And I was completely disagreeing with uh, Fleischmann and Pons with their theoretical assumptions. The, Cl the Coulomb barrier, just, just for the people who, who aren't nuclear physicists, the Coulomb barrier is the repulsion, the electrostatic repulsion between nuclei, uh, because the nuclei are both positively charged, they repel each other. So there's this barrier that you can't push them close enough together to uh, get the nuclear force to create fusion. And this is why in hot fusion, people accelerate particles together at high speeds, is to get past that Coulombic barrier and allow the nuclei to interact and create larger elements. So this is the 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 main difficulty with cold fusion is that cold fusion doesn't typically have the energies necessary to get over this barrier. Is that a correct statement? This is precisely right. What you said. This was a good explanation of of uh, the main obstacle in the theoretical understanding of cold fusion or LENR. So. Because of this, I thought that I need an intermediate state. So in a direct manner, fusion is impossible. But maybe there is a new type of physical object that first creates out of the experimental conditions. And this object then has the, the properties to allow for fusion. So this was a new way of approaching LENR. Nobody else did this before. So the assumption of an intermediate state was um, uh, elemental. It was fundamental for, for my work. And the closest that I have found in the lit literature is uh, the saying of um, um, the, the nuclear active environment. Have you heard about this term? Not really, no. I think Edmund Storms coined this term, the nuclear active environment. So this was the closest thing I found, and there was no explanation what exactly this nuclear active environment is. So when I talk about the intermediate state, I mean nuclear active environment, the thing that allows for fusion. Now, how do you come to an understanding of this, this thing? I um, used a quantum chemistry program, off-the-shelf program, and tried to arrange atoms in different ways. So my first attempt was putting hydrogen, four hydrogen atoms in close proximity to a nickel atom. And I wanted to know what does it do quantum, mechanical, quantum mechanically if I do so. If I reduce the distance further and further, what comes out? Will it create some, some uh, new sort of state or not? Is it ordinary matter that comes out or is it something special that I see there? And the answer was, uh, nothing special comes out. It was a complete failure. But with this experimenting, I made an interesting discovery. If I put a row of nickel atoms 
in a line and then make this uh, the distances between the nickel atoms smaller and smaller and smaller, um, something very interesting happens. The um, electrons are no longer localized to one of the um, nuclei. They can move freely from one nucleus to the next. And because of this new um, freedom of movement, the um, electronic states are lowered. So the, the, um, the electrons fall into a lower orbital, so to speak. If, if you do so. However, it takes energy to create this object. So it was still not a new type of matter, but it was interestingly interesting enough that it triggered my, my theory. So I thought, okay, what would, what would be necessary to make this thing um, more stable and to create it in, in nature? I cannot grab atoms and put them together. I need some trick to do so. And I thought maybe a current does it. If I have a plasma and a very strong current is flowing, this creates a Z-pinch. A Z-pinch is a, um, a plasma a column or, or wire of plasma, so to speak, which is compressed by magnetic forces if the current is, is very strong. And I thought, hey, this is a good a good way to compress matter. Um, let's let's find out whether I can make an intermediate state with it that explains linear. And I very soon found out that the software that I was using is way too slow. I, I would say at least ten orders of magnitude too slow to compute what I had in mind. So I was, uh, first of all, programming my own software. I was um, creating a model of these condensed plasmoids, which is, as I said, a Z-binge, a very small, very thin column of plasma. And uh, because of the cylindri cylindrical geometry of, of this object, I could make a computation much faster. So I was abstracting from, from individual atoms. I was assuming a very dense column of, of um, positive charge in the middle of this cylinder and using that as the potential with uh, where the, the electrons are moving in. Before, before you go on, the Z-pinch phenomenon is a real phenomenon. This is something that... Uh, they use in hot fusion in tokamaks to control their plasma. Is that correct? They use the the, the idea of the Z pinch to, to keep that hot plasma dense. Yeah, and this is a good point in time to explain the difference between cold fusion and hot fusion. So the um, um, Z pinch experiments in hot fusion try to use very large currents like mega amps. To, to uh, pressurize the plasma. And at the same time, they want to have this plasma very hot. As you said, to allow for fast enough collisions between the atoms so that they fuse. Now, with mega amps of current, you're automatically getting a very hot plasma because there are losses and the current is, is heating up the, the plasma. And if you make the current small enough, like having only 10,000 amps, the plasma will radiate away its, uh, its heat very rapidly. In less than a microsecond, it cools down to ordinary temperatures. And the good thing about this cooling down is that there is no thermal pressure inside the plasmoid. So with hot fusion, you have difficulties to pressurize, uh, to, to um, make the plasma very dense because it is hot and heat creates um, a pressure. And in cold fusion, the opposite is true. The uh, object cools down so fast that you almost have no 
thermal pressure. And the, the whole thing is, is compressed further and further from the magnetic field. Interestingly, the thinner the object gets, um, the higher the magnetic field becomes, and it collapses entirely to the quantum mechanical limit. So there is a certain minimum current you need to, to achieve that. And once you exceed that current, uh, the object condenses into a range that is potentially smaller than the radius of an atom. So this plasma co uh, column, although it is very dense, uh, densely packed with, with um, nuclei, is thinner than an ordinary atom. And this explains why um, you have fusion, because the, the nuclei are so close to each other, they are also shielded by very dense electron gas, so the positive charge is kind of compensated from the electron gas, and um, the magnetic field gets in the order of 50 megatesla. To put that in a perspective, if I if I'm a researcher and and build my own lab for some scientific measurement, I will have difficulties with coils to create a, a magnetic field larger than 10 or 20 tesla. That is the exper experimental limit what you can do in a lab, and we have 50 mega tesla. In these objects, this is astronomically strong magnetic field, and th therefore the matter density is 100,000 100, times larger than in ordinary matter. And does this magnetic field then explain why the electrons don't fly apart? Because they're obviously very densely packed. You're saying that, the, in, as I read your paper, you're saying that the um, plasmoid is strongly negatively charged. So what is it the magnetic field that keeps those electrons from flying off? Absolutely. So a slow electron would just fly away from the object. That happens. You can measure that the object is emitting electrons with a um, energy of two to ten electron, a uh, two to ten kilo electron volts. This speaks a language about the negative potential in the core. So once an electron slows down, for example, by means of scattering against the nuclei, it will, it will be lost, it will fly away. But if it is fast enough, if it is, let's say, at least 10% of the speed of light, it will stick to the, to the core because the magnetic field is uh, bending the path of the electron towards the axis of that object again and again, so it cannot escape. This explains the pressure. This is the mechanism how it builds up the pressure. Hmm. So you've, you've um, put together a research group, I think, to work on this. I saw you had a, a website on condensed plasmoids with several uh, people. Looking at the, the people in your group, none of them have a PhD in physics. For many people, this might add a level of concern about the, the viability of your work. Has your hypothesis been published in a peer-reviewed journal, or has it been reviewed in any way by scientific uh, experts in these fields? Yes, it is published in uh, the, the main um, paper, or, or what is this called, magazine? Journal of Con Condensed Matter Nuclear science okay so it's been peer-reviewed so, yes peer-reviewed it it is a shortened version of my long paper the the original paper was 100 page long and the the reviewed version was something like between 20 and 30 pages so i had to leave out many details how i came to this um, solution Nonetheless, um, there, there was a lot of scrutiny before I was allowed to publish this. I also presented that theory at ICCF and got um, surprisingly positive uh, feedback from many researchers. I didn't expect that because I am 
disagreeing with most of the researchers there from a theoretical standpoint, and I was expecting mainly resistance, and that was not the case. So people understood that the thoughts that I'm putting in make sense. So this is a very, um, I would say, new idea. There's a lot of, like, you're basically positing a new state of matter that no one's seen before here. Um, how much new physics is involved in this model? At one point, uh, you mentioned that uh, EM, electromagnetic interactions between electron current and excited nuclei, uh, result in de-excitation of the energetic nuclei before they can emit gamma rays. Uh, has this been observed anywhere else? So let me first make a distinction. My paper speaks of the main theory, which is a quantum mechanical description of this intermediate state, which I call condensed plasmoid. And then there are certain hypotheses, which I'm putting on top of this uh, um, theory. And they are of a different subject. For example, they want to explain the outcome what, what isotopes are created, or the outcome, why is no gamma rad radiation or no, no neutron radiation seen and all this. This, this type of, um, or this part of, of my paper is not well funded. It is just the, um, the aftermath or the outcome of when you try to use the theory, what, what can you do with it? And there are certain arguments behind these hypotheses, but to compute that in a, in a physically precise manner would be a paper in, in, in itself. It would take a lot of effort to make, for example, to compute the tunneling rate. It would be very important to compute that. Also, if you if you are referring to the cooling mechanism that that um, I put in there, that requires a a solid computation. I did only a hand computation, a very simple-minded uh, computation that shows me that this is plausible, but it's not proven by this calculation. It is a hypothesis, right? And um, it explains why there is no gamma radiation coming out and why all the isotopes that are created, or most of them, are stable instead of radioactive. Hmm. So has there been any uh, rebuttal published in the literature? Have, what kind of, have you, have you experienced pushback from the, from the scientific establishment on your theory? After the years after my presentation at ICCF, I saw a decline in interest. So the interest level was, was um, good at the beginning. I stayed in contact with a number of researchers who then um, also tried to do some experiments along the line that, that we do. But that is a small a small group of people. It's, it's not... It's, it, I haven't created a revolution, and I did not even try to. My, um, my reasoning was, it's good to put it out into the public. If somebody else finds out something similar, he will most certainly search in the literature what is already known, will certainly contact me, and then we have a scientific dialogue and we can move forward. So far, this has not happened. So our group is alone, so to speak, almost alone in um, the application of that theory into a practical uh, apparatus for energy creation. And I must say that our attempts to do so are to a certain degree successful. We were able to prove a number of predictions that came out of the theory for example, we see a very strong um, 
difference between an ordinary glow discharge and um, a connection between the electrodes with a condensed plasmoid. That is sharply different. An ordinary glow discharge would draw a current of some milliamps in, in our apparatus, and we see thousands of amps going through the uh, plasma discharge. And that makes us comfortable that there is something we can measure. <laughs> and it even looks like it is creating energy. So it lives for a certain time, for a certain time span. And during that time span, it is creating energy. And the energy comes out in terms of fast electrons. So this is kind of a... a um, a proof point towards the assumption that the nuclei are cooled by electrons because now the electrons are getting faster by the cooling process and we see fast electrons coming out. And that is very useful. Fast electrons are useful for many things. You can create heat with it and whatever. So what, uh, what magic do you need to do to make a condensed plasmoid uh, of your type that like what are there special initial conditions that need to be set like why does for example palladium electrolysis create this what distinguishes this from any other arc discharge yeah palladium is, is special i will explain that at the at the end um to create a condensed plasmoid is extremely simple so it's, it's astonishingly simple an ordinary spark is always um, creating a condensed plasmoid without any ex um, exemption. So when you see a high-speed video from ordinary lightning, you see a precursor running through the sky, or many of them, which are comparably slow in motion, so they can be filmed, and they look like a little ball, -like, ball lightning uh, flying through the air with a glowing tail after it. And this, this object leaves a conductive path in the air. And once this, this leader, this, this um, object that flies through the air, hits the other pole, let's say the Earth, then this conductive path all, all over a sudden draws current in the order of 100,000 amps or more, maybe even million amps. So the, the interesting thing is before that happens, the interesting thing is the leader. Why is there a conductive path so stably established for, for such a long time in the air, if that would be normal ionization, it would have decayed way before the, the actual lightning occurs. So this type of object that you can see with these leaders are condensed plasmoids. They can get at as long as 200 kilometers and even longer condensed plasmoids can be seen in the um, corona of this of the sun so you see this filamental filamentary plasma if you look at the sun's atmosphere and they exist in very thin gas this is in outer space so to speak this is not close to the surface of the sun so what is the reason that there are plasma filaments and why is this plasma as hot as 50 to 100 million degrees Celsius, whereas the um, solar surface below is only 6,000 Kelvin? Something creates a lot of energy in outer space and very thin gas. It seems to align itself along magnetic field lines. And all these properties fit nicely into my theory. Because if you assume that these um, condensed plasmoids are winding up like little coils, which is a sort of an instability, they, they, um, 
how can I say that? A plasma column with a large current in it tends to form a helical structure instead of just a linear thing. And if you have this helical structure, then it will align to the external magnetic field lines that exist somewhere and will increase that field by orders of magnitude through its, its own current. And this is what, what happens at the sun, and this is what producing large amounts of energy there, and maybe even within the sun. Nobody knows that because you can't look in, inside of it. But my reasoning is that maybe the assumptions of the, the hot fusion guys are um, completely wrong. Maybe even the sun uses cold fusion to do what, what we do. So these objects have been uh, over, over the course of more than 100 years. There are many experiments in history which were indicative for condensed plasmoids long before Fleischmann and Pons. So I think, I mean, you know, uh, you know, we're taught that any sort of spark discharge is just a, a column of electrons going from uh, your cathode to your anode. Um, and you're proposing that these are actually condensed plasmoids in all cases? Yes. I'm not the only one saying this. So... Um, the real discoverer of condensed plasmoids is Kenneth Shoulders, or let's say, together with um, Winston Bostick. So he tried to experiment with very small uh, currents and large voltages, and he found out that he is able to create new types of objects that is, uh, is able to ionize away meta um, in a way that cannot be explained by the energy amount that he puts in. So he saw these ring-shaped um, and, and helical structures that my theory describes decades before I did, and he did thorough measurements on it. So he was able to determine the um, uh, kinetic energy of electrons coming out of these objects, he was able to determine that these objects contain negative charge or mass, which exactly is what my theory says. So so what, what other predictions does your theory make and, and, and uh, what, are you ex what are you hoping to validate in the lab? So we are currently doing electrical measurements directly on condensed plasmoids. And we are very lucky that they stay connected with the electrodes for long enough to do so. And um, an important parameter is the impedance of such object. So we see, for example, if the pressure is very low, the impedance gets very low, let's say less, less than half an ohm on a distance of four centimeters which is absolutely not normal for a glow discharge or for a, for an arc or whatever object that people know. And when the pressure is higher, the resistance gets higher. But also the energy production uh, gets higher. So we see interesting phenomena. So this is the first thing, and of course we want to achieve a situation or we want to measure conditions where the energy amount is larger than the energy we put in. This is our first um, goal. When we have that, we can try to build an apparatus that makes use of that energy. Other experiments you could do is, and partially we did that already, you could find out what happens if a CP dies, a condensed plasmoid, if it dies, what happens then? You should see a, a kind of a micro explosion, a sharp, a sharp click, because at that point, the current stops flowing that previously was flowing into the, in, in these plasmoids. And that is creating some noise, electromagnetic frequencies in the, in the outer environment and we see this very clearly in our experiments. So the, the death moment of a CP is such a significant thing, it is very easy to measure. And it's kind of a signature. When you have these objects, um, there is a click 
at a point in time where your your electrodes are completely calm. They they cannot create this click. It must come out of these objects. Hmm. That's very interesting. And it coincides it coincides with the moment when the current goes to zero. So it it, it is not an arbitra- arbitrary point in time. It it, it exists at the right moment in time, what the theory would would, uh, tell you. And then you can watch the um, traces that these objects do on surfaces. So when these objects hit surfaces, they leave engravings there, which are very special. They are described in my paper in in many forms and shapes, and we see them in, in the microscope, we can create these objects with 100% uh, repeatability, and we see all the engravings that are have been observed, observed in other Lena experiments. And this brings me back to your uh, uh, special question about palladium and electrolysis and, and things like that. So I believe there is a misunderstanding in the in the community. I believe that if you have electrolysis and you do it with a high current density, you're getting micro sparking. So around the cathode, there is a depletion layer. The uh, positive ions move towards the cathode and get discharged. So neutralized. The negative ions move away from the cathode. And then in this, in this small sheath of liquid, there is mostly only water left because all the ions are moving out of the zone. So it's kind of the, the cathode is insulating itself electrically. And this, this sheath, this non-conductive sheath, is extremely thin, extraordinary thin. And all your voltage drop that you see, or most of your voltage drop that you see in your electrolysis falls um, across this insulating sheath, this depletion sheath. And if you drive your current high enough, there will be discharges through this, this sheet. It's like a little spark occurring, like a short short circuit that discharges the uh, electrolyte against the cathode. And that creates plasma. And the plasma, by chance, creates condensed plasmoids. And also, by chance, they have a certain lifetime. And if you're very lucky, then um, the same condensed plasmoid gets... Um, receives a discharge again and again and again and each time it grows a little bit and this growing leads to a cratering of the cathode and that has been clearly seen in all the experiments where where, um, excess heat comes out you see characteristic craters in your cathode and um, my model is that in the middle of this crater there is a condensed plasmoid and that gets energy again and again of microsparking. And this is the mechanism how you uh, create uh, uh, cold fusion, not in the palladium, not in the water, but in these condensed plasmoids that are attached to the cathode. So the point where the heat comes is these little craters. No, nowhere else you see heat coming out. It's only in these craters. And I have seen um, infrared videos from a cathode, which clearly shows that. This is little flashes at distinct points on the surface of the cathode where the energy is created. It's not a homogeneous effect. And when you look at the uh, nuclear products that come out, they will not be found in um, in the metal of the cathode. So it's not in the metal where the reaction occurs because there, there is an absence of reaction pro- products. All the products you will see in the outcoming gas and in the electrolyte, which once again speaks a language in terms of where the re- reaction comes uh, occurs. 
Mm. So palladium is is better for this? Well, there is something very special uh, about palladium, and I need to explain that. Um, when you uh, measure the mobility of hydrogen atoms in the palladium lattice, you find out that light hydrogen has a much lower mobility than deuterium. So it is like a two-fluid plasma in a solid state. So the, the plasma consists of the electron gas that exists in the metal always. So a normal metal is a one-fluid plasma. And here you have a two-fluid plasma. You have highly mobile um, deuterons as the positive charges of a plasma, and you have electrons as a negative gas. And my suspicion is that this um, two-fluid plasma can, if you send a strong current through it, can condense, can create condensed plasmoids even in the at the surface, even without this micro-sparking. That, that, that is seen, for example, in thin film experiments with palladium in uh, deuterium atmosphere. You see that at certain points in the film, in the palladium film, you see explosions and destructions of that, that film. And um, they occur if you send a current through this very thin film. And it it leads to a condensed plasmoid because you first had a plasma, a two-fluid plasma. You're sending a current through, so you have a plasmoid. And um, apparently that can condense. And this is very specific to palladium. It only happens in palladium. No other material is known to produce this kind of effect in thin films. In all other experiments, you need to have a plasma, for example, with uh, cavitation or with uh, glow discharge or with sparking or with whatever it is. You need to have a plasma before you see excess heat. Best example for that is plasma electrolysis. That is much easier to do and to create large amounts of excess heat. Mitsuno did this. He had um, uh, tungsten electrodes and did plasma electrolysis in water. And he saw excess heats in the order of 100 watts in a little bottle. Very easy to do. And, and there you can imagine that the plasma is instrumental in, in creating that heat. Because when he reduces the current density such that the plasma stops up and the electrolysis still occurs, no excess heat comes out. So what does this mean, if your hypothesis is correct, for the field of LENR? Um, does this explain the, the the difficulties people have had with reproducing it in the past does your does your does your hypothesis absolutely can you maybe expand on that a little bit yeah sure so to create a condensed plasmoids you need a few hundred amps only now these objects have not the highest possible density and the fusion rate is very low. However, these objects have a long lifetime. At these uh, amounts of current, the lifetime is increased by partial ionization. So not all the electrons are delocalized, but only the outer shells are delocalized. And these kind of objects are almost stable. They can live for hours, if you want. So it's very easy to study these objects, very reproducible once you once you engage in this kind of research and you know what you do. It's no longer black magic. You can do this in 100% of the time. You always create these, uh, these objects. 
Now, if you make your current stronger, you will see excess heat coming out again with 100% reproducibility. And then you're left with the practical difficulties. You need an electronics that gives you the pulses of that strength. You need to have a mechanism that harvests the energy that comes out and makes makes use of it in, in some sort of, of way. So the whole thing would stop to be a black magic if my theory would be applied to all Leonard research, not just in our group. It would be a big improvement of the field, but it will take time <laughs> before the community finds out that in each and every experiment, plasma is involved. This is not common sense. This is not what people re, uh, believe to happen. I give you a very interesting example. People build multi-layer structures of palladium and calcium oxide and then later on send, um, let, let deuterium diffuse through this multi-layer structure And they see little amounts of excess heat coming out and uh, certain transmutations occurring in these films. So it's absolutely non-obvious because this is just gas diffusion. How is this involving a plasma? How on earth is a plasma occurring? My belief is when these, when these multi-layer structures are created, they certainly have plasma. They, they put the palladium sheet metal inside a plasma discharge vessel and then they have a sputter target of calcium oxide and they deposit calcium oxide with by means of a plasma and then they remove that, that sputter target by another sheet of palladium and cover it with palladium and again and again they, they have um, a plasma and by chance they are creating condensed plasmoids, which are embedded in these multi-layer structures. And at certain point, points in their structure, they have long-living condensed plasmoids. And once they send deuterium through it, oh yeah, you, you're getting transmutations. So you can imagine, these, these guys doing these experiments will be the last ones to understand that each and every LENA experiment involves plasma or another very famous example, which is kind of interesting, is Andrea Rossi with his nickel powder hydrogen experiments. You're certainly aware of, of him and his experiments, right? Mm -hmm. So, heard of him. yeah. So he found out that if he has a pipe with nickel powder in it and some hydrogen flowing through this pipe or some substances containing hydrogen, um, putting into this, this um, pipe, he can create excess heat. But only if he, heat is, if he is heating it, it up from outside with a coil, with a heating coil. And interestingly, the reaction doesn't work if this coil is, is uh, uh, heated by DC current. It just doesn't work. And if he has instead... Um, chopped DC current, like you have switching it on and off with a regulator with a, with a switch, then the reaction works. What does that tell you? It tells you that the inductive spikes that are created by turning a current on and off and in a magnetic field on and off is enough to create little sparks between the nickel powder grains And that is the triggering event that uh, allows the reaction to occur. So this is a, another very famous example where plasma is involved, but you wouldn't assume so, right? This is counterintuitive. You don't see the plasma and you wonder why this works and why it only works with chopped DC and not with, with normal DC. Mm -hmm. So... You're proposing that these plasmoids can be long-lived um, for hours, for example, um, just living happily on their own, uh, circulating current at, at, at huge uh, 
campers. Um, they should be observable, shouldn't they? Shouldn't you see light from them? Could you could you not uh, look for, yes. look for the emissions? It, it has been it has been observed. So so uh, I think the name is Bogdanovich, a, a Russian researcher, had a very simple experiment. He was um, having a a, f- a small outlet for water. He was uh, having a stream of water running down from one electrode to another electrode, he was putting high voltages between these electrodes and he saw some some glowing phenomenon occurring. And then he was switching off his high voltages and astonishingly there were objects living for hours after the experiment and still emitting light. So yes, indeed, um, these objects can emit light they not always emit light. They can have so small currents in there that no light is securing. And by the way, a regular ball lightning is such an object. So a ball lightning is normally glowing very bright. And um, I have seen photographs of a group of researchers who were creating artificial ball lightnings. That is possible. You can do that. And um, interestingly, they saw that some of the ball lightnings lived long enough that the glowing stopped and they became kind of gray objects. They uh, were, if you had a light background, you could see this, this ball in front of this light object and it was the result of a previously light or bright ball lightning. So, uh, both is possible. Kenneth Shoulders was talking about a dark state and a white state of these kind of objects. And this is exactly what, what happens. And the difference between light and, and uh, um, dark is just the amount of current that flows, simply. Interesting. Well, this has been... Uh very uh, informative uh, to chat with you about your hypothesis. Uh, I really learned a lot about it. Uh, I appreciate you coming on to to chat with us about uh, condensed plasmoids. And I hope uh, uh, we can learn more about these as as time progresses. And maybe this is going to come to the forefront of, of physics and save the world. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, I would be delighted, but I'm also scared. Uh, energy is uh, a political thing, and um, there are enough forces who don't like cheap energy in a decentralized manner. So we are kind of afraid by means of what we are doing, and we keep doing it because we see the importance for humanity. And uh, I think um, there is a real chance, a realistic chance that we are able to build an apparatus that is useful to create energy. Oh, look, looking forward to seeing that demonstration. Uh, so thank you for coming on The Rational View and chatting with me. Uh, I have a, a final question for you that I asked some of my guests. Um, what, uh, what science fiction interests you? Do you like, uh, do you like uh, reading uh, science fiction books or, or movies? I did read some science fictions in the past, but I am not a fan of it. And I try to, my life is so exciting. I don't need to re-read fiction of any sort. So Yeah, excellent. So for coming on, I'm going to send you a, a Rational View t-shirt uh, for your time. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Lutz. You're very welcome. Thanks for reaching out. This is important that the message comes through, that more people are um, starting to look at it because it is a political hurdle that holds back this type of science. There is still no mainstream institution taking care of the research, and this is very bad for the field. It would progress much faster if... um, we come out of this um, smearing attempts that occur against our research. And the, the prerequisite for it is just spreading the word and you're doing a good job in, in, in this. And I thank you for that. Thank you, Lutz. 
If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.